Genesis chapter number 50. We'll read a few verses and then pray and God bless you for your faithfulness um, on these Wednesday nights as we just study the word of God that changes our lives and our perspective in these last days in which we're living. Genesis 50 and you'll remember this verse 24 and Joseph said unto his brethren I die and God will surely visit you. What faith? And bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being an hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, Exodus 1, verse 1, now these are the names of the children of Israel, or Jacob, which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. Father, please help us tonight. There are so many distractions, and I know people are tired from a hard day's work, and I pray you'll strengthen them and all of us and myself for this time when we open our hearts to what the Spirit has to say to your church, to your people. We need this, and we need it every hour. We need you, and so please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning tonight a continuation of our recent study on foundations by simply doing essentially what the Scripture itself does at the very end of the book of Genesis. Genesis ends, you'll notice, with the word Egypt. That's the last, isn't that amazing? The last word of the first book of the Bible is the word Egypt. Well, guess what? Exodus begins with the same sons of Jacob still in Egypt. In verse 1, you see the word Egypt. Egypt. Genesis ends with the faith of, of Joseph. So much faith that he says, when I die and you are delivered because you will be delivered one day, take my bones out of here. I want to be buried in the land of promise. It ends with the faith of Joseph who knows that God has a bigger and a better plan than to leave his people without the promised land, without their answer to sin. They're all still struggling with sin like you and I. And without any kind of restoration back to God. Everything that was lost way back in the garden in our very first studies in this series was promised a remedy. And Joseph knows that that remedy is not in ancient Egypt. Not exactly. Verse 25 of Genesis 50 again. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from hence. By the way, why was it important for Joseph to give these instructions, sort of his last will and testament, before he dies. Well, it's because Joseph was the number two man in all of Egypt. Joseph was a prince, and he knows that when he dies, they're going to stick his body in the middle of some pyramid, pyramids that the Egyptians built and sealed permanently to protect it from grave robbers. You know, some of the pyramids were so well built and so well sealed that it took modern 20th century equipment just to get into them. Well, Joseph just wasn't about that. He wasn't going to allow that. Buried, therefore, in some sort of protective shrine, his coffin was, in fact, eventually removed in what is now known as the Exodus. And the word Exodus is an interesting word. It's actually a Latin word here, and who knows what it means in the Hebrew? It means one thing, exit. It literally means exit. So that the people of Israel, after 400 years of sojourning, are finally now going to exit 
get out of the land of Egypt. The only thing is, by this time, they're slaves. Decades, centuries have passed. They are slaves, they are powerless, they are poor, they are persecuted. And if Pharaoh has, this Pharaoh had his way, most of them would be all but destroyed. So that any plan of departure, which is the Greek uh, equivalent in the New Testament, exit by these people now is simply impossible. It is absolutely humanly impossible for them to get out of there. So what are they going to do? Well, what happens next is one of the single greatest narratives in all of Scripture. It is an account, beloved, of how something that God did over 3,500 years ago for these people still influences world events to this very night. As a matter of fact, what happened 3,500 years ago influences New Testament churches like ours to this very month. You say, Pastor, you're referring to communion, right? You're referring to the Lord's Supper. Well, yes, the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of Passover for sure. But even without that, what God does, as you're going to see, I think, in redeeming his people from Egypt and then establishing them as a nation has enormous impact on what we believe as Christians and what God is doing right now in the world. Exodus 1, verse 1 again. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. These are the names. By the way, notice it's names. You know, we serve a God who knows individuals. Your name, my name. It's not just a mass of people. That's how the world studies history, but it's the names. The ancient rabbis called this the book of names. And he goes on to give the names. Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel, has gone into. It says in verse 1, they came into Egypt. And of course, it's one thing to go into a place. It's another thing to be born in the place in which people had gone. And it's an entirely different matter to be born into the place from generations and generations and generations past. So the names are given in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. We know them all. Verse 6 says this, rather verse 7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, thus they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. Let's stop here for a minute. You see the sign, let's see, right there, that sign, the green one, and then there's one here. There's seven or eight of them, I think. I think there's eight of them. Those are exit signs. It says exit. It's really not that big of a deal for us tonight. We see them so often that we don't really even see them till I point it out and show it to you. You don't look at them. And that's because we can use those exits anytime we want. When the service is over, we exit. When a baby 
cries in the nursery and you get a notation or whatever on your buzzer, you just get up and you, you just exit. When the preacher's been babbling on for two hours, mass exit. Exodus, you might say. Well, the exit, that sign, that place, the idea of it, really isn't all that critical in our minds right now. But suppose that all of a sudden there's a fire in this building. Or more to the point, suppose that you were stuck in this building, not for an hour or two hours, not for a weekend, but suppose you were born in this building without any exit signs. There are no exit signs whatsoever. And with the knowledge that your father and your father's father and your father's father's father and all the way back for generations, they were all born and they all died in that same place with no exit signs, the same room. That's not all. Verse 13, And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick, and all manner of service in the field and all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. In other words, not only are you stuck in here from your birth until your death, but throughout that entire time your life is bitter. Your life, unlike it was with Joseph, your life here in Egypt is hard and as a despairing slave so that your life, your existence entirely is stuck, if you will, in a land of total bondage and you have nothing. No property, no money, no power. But then, suppose that suddenly, after 400 years, all of a sudden, an exit sign appears. It just shows up, and it says, Exodus. Now, for 400 years, they were stories. They would tell their children and their grandchildren, and for generations, they would tell them about the promises. They would talk about Joseph hundreds of years ago, who, who promised that we would be visited and his bones were going to carry the promised land. So there were stories and a possible exit. There was the hope of redemption. But all of a sudden, when things, by the way, become at their absolute worst, and the Egyptians start killing their little babies, all of a sudden the exit sign appears. Well, that changes things. Automatically, obviously adds weight to this simple word exit or exodus now please hear this 400 years is a long time for a slave nation 400 years in bondage about twice as long as america has been in freedom twice as long almost and so who's to say that when this exit sign appears there's some sort of a moment a promise Who's to say that they're going to be able to get out of here? Who's to say they want to get out of here, that they trust? And who's going to lead them if they don't know how they're going to get out of here? It's just an exodus. And what do over a, a million slaves, what are a million slaves going to do when and if they go, do go through, they see and they go through that exit and taste their first taste of freedom? Because remember, folks, they're not soldiers they're not pioneers. They're not entrepreneurs. They're not explorers. They're institutionalized slaves. 
You know, one of the problems with politicians who claim they want to American policy is to spread democracy to all of the people in bondage throughout the world. The problem with that is that it's one thing to be set free. It's a whole other thing to be made free. You know, a bird that's been in captivity might be set free. There's no guarantee that it knows how to survive and to live in freedom. And this is why, just like the Gospels, and the beginning of the New Testament church, if you study it, Exodus is filled with miracles. There's three great times of miracles in the Bible. Exodus, Elijah, and Elisha, and the founding of the church, the apostles in Christ. Between that, where are the miracles with David and Isaiah? The reason for the miracles, and again, if you read the Psalms and you read the prophets, you'll find that what they constantly refer to when it comes back to quoting the book of Exodus, the number one thing they always refer to are the miracles, the mighty hand of God. That is, the signs and the wonders that got them out of Egypt and the miracles that sustained them in the desert as well. And the reason for that is that freedom is never really, really easy. And God wants us to know that it's also not cheap. You know, in reference to what I said a moment ago, this, our CIA, the CIA wanted people in Libya and Afghanistan and Iraq to live as freedom-loving people. So they have all of these policies. They wanted them to adopt a democratic constitution just like we enjoy in the United States of America. But when it comes to our own freedoms, and this, the United States Constitution that, that we live under, did the CIA and the Bushes in those days forget that there were pilgrims who were being persecuted over there and then risked everything they had crossing an ocean and facing a wilderness there were after that revolutionaries who fought and bled and died these were people who denounced who lost their British citizenship their families they pledged their lives their fortunes and their sacred honor right you know the story in other words, an incalculable amount of blood and sweat and tears, of labor and brilliance, both before and after the Declaration of Independence is why we get to live in a free land. It wasn't easy. The Berlin Wall may have suddenly come down. Saddam and Gaddafi were perhaps suddenly, and they were suddenly removed. But where was Baghdad's William Bradford or Cairo's Patrick Henry or Tripoli's Paul Revere or George Washington or Colonel Travis. Real freedom is not easy. And real deliverance that leads to real freedom requires power. It requires a miracle called redemption. And of course, that's precisely why the Exodus and all of the events that will follow is the single favorite story in the New Testament. We are a New Testament Bible-believing church. But if you read the Gospels and especially the Epistles, all you're going to find over and over and over and over again are references to the Exodus. Hebrews eleven twenty six. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. 
Jesus told the Jews, Nicodemus, all that would listen right there. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man also be lifted up. With great desire, Jesus said on his last night, with great desire I have desired to eat this Passover. What Passover? This one with you. How long do you think that Jesus longed and waited and desired to eat that specific Passover? A year? Two years? 33 years? See, Pastor, 3,000 years, ever since Moses. Actually, he was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. That Passover he had looked forward to from eternity past. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was glorified in front of the apostles, the disciples, Peter, James, and John. And standing there with him was Moses. And Luke 9.31 says that they discussed Jesus's, here's the English word, departure. Look it up in the Greek. It's the word exodus. They discussed Jesus's exodus from this earth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the word for departure. You talk about redemption. In fact, I want you to notice on the screen what it says in the book of Jude. Just before the book of Revelation, verse 4 says that these cultists deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of, of, of Egypt. Jude is saying that Jesus is the one. That the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who redeemed the people. No wonder Hebrew says that Moses endured as seeing him. Hebrew says that's Jesus, him who is invisible. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, it says, And Jesus, beginning at Moses, expounded unto them all of the things in the Scriptures concerning himself. The book of Exodus is about Jesus. It's about the New Testament church. In other words, the Exodus, folks, isn't just a story of redemption. It is the story of redemption. It begins and carries on the only story of redemption. It's why we sing, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed what? By the blood of the Lamb. What Lamb? The Passover Lamb pictured the true Lamb of God. Of course, in order to be redeemed, in order to exit and thus be set free, you first have to be captive or in bondage. You have to be in before you go out. And so you'll notice again the last chapter of Genesis, and it says this in verse 26. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is how Genesis ends, except that's not really an ending, is it? It's not an ending at all. Joseph died in Egypt. You see the first word of verse 1 of Exodus? Now, the Hebrew word is and. It means the same thing as English now. And these are the names. It's just a continuation. And so if you look at verse 6 of chapter 1 of Exodus, it says, and Joseph died. Well, what's it say in the last verse of Genesis? So Joseph died. Exodus 1, 6, and Joseph died. Look at all of verse 6. And Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. Well, that's a reminder for us. It's a reminder of how the children of Jacob or Isaac got into Egypt in the first place. 
And how do they become slaves in Egypt? Well, we read it, verse 7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now, folks, if you do the math, you're going back in the genealogy that's given right here, you will count 70 people. In fact, verse 5 says 70, look at it, 70 souls. 70 Israelites started out in the land of Egypt. It's hard to imagine how 70 people can turn into one and a half or two million. But don't forget, this was the promise God gave Abraham. This was exactly the promise that God gave to Abraham when he said, look at the stars, the sands of the sea. I'm going to have your people that come out of your loins. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're going to be that many people. And sure enough, they multiplied. As he says, I will bless thee and multiply thee exceedingly the promise of Abraham. And God kept his promise. We're told that there were 600,000 men at this point. Add the women, add the children. It's one and a half to two million people. But he also promised Abraham a land, not just people. And that's now why he's leading them out of Egypt. All these promises apply to us. You see, even though the children of Israel did very well and prospered in Egypt, it was never God's intention. Never that Egypt become the promised land. Nor was it ever God's intention that this Egypt, this world, be our promised land. I want you to look at verse 8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Just like that, Israel's fun was over. Their good times as a sojourn in Egypt turned from prosperity to persecution, and it's a reminder of Joseph's prophecy on his deathbed. One day God will visit you. He's going to deliver you. And when he does, take these bones, my body, take it to the promised land of Canaan with you. Understand that when Joseph was buried, things were very, very good for the Jews in Egypt. They were even great. But there's a new sheriff in town, a new pharaoh, who, quote, knew not Joseph. And for this pharaoh, first he saw all these Jews, how many there were, and he feared them. Secondly, he hated them. Thirdly, he subjugated them. This is a pattern that you're going to see throughout all of human history going forward from this moment. It says in verse 12, look at it. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they, the Egyptians, Pharaoh, were grieved because of the children of Israel. It doesn't matter what the kingdom I don't care if it's Artaxerxes in Persia, if it's Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, if it's Pharaoh in Egypt, if it's Nero in Rome or Hitler in Germany or Stalin in Russia or Castro in Cuba or now Maduro in Venezuela, it doesn't matter. Despots will always fear, then hate, then try to subjugate the people of God, whether it be the people of Israel or Christians as the people of God. They will fear them, hate them, and then finally they will try to control them. And of course, when it comes to power politics, it's always about who you know. Verse 8 says, when the new regime, the new dynasty and king came, quote, he knew not Joseph. And you know what, beloved, like all godless dictators, the Pharaoh was insecure, he was paranoid, 
and he reacted in the same satanic way that all rulers always do against the people of God. Here he is. There's a reason for that. It is because, just as we're going to learn in the weeks ahead, there is and there has always been a spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes. If this is God's plan of redemption, Satan hates it. If this is God working in nations and individuals, Satan hates his work. There has always been a spiritual battle. I watched an interview yesterday. It interested me because it was between Tucker, Tucker Carlson and Russell Brand. Russell Brand, who um, was a comedian for years and so forth and now is, is being canceled in Great Britain. And they were talking about the problems of the world in America and Britain, and in the West in particular. And how the problem is basically the media, the government, tyranny, it's coming down and it's only coming down on a certain kind of people. And they both kind of at the end came to this conclusion, and you can hear them say it, they, they said it's almost as if there's a spiritual war going on. Because they're talking about how illogical it is and how, why would they try to, to hurt the people that are under them the most. And they said it's as if there's some spiritual battle that we can't see going on between good and evil. And I raised my hand in my living room. And I gave the answer. With every crack of the whip on an Israelite's back, Pharaoh was striking a blow against God himself. Because he was against what God was doing. He resented God's people. He rejected God's promise, which was, I will bless them that bless thee. And then he resisted God's plan. It was God's plan. And that plan included the freedom of his people to live in Canaan, to therefore be a witness to his own glory. That was not Pharaoh's plan, not this Pharaoh. This Pharaoh, it so happens, thinks he's God. Matter of fact, he thinks he's the incarnate son of Ra, the sun god. He thinks he's the ruler of the universe. And again, it, it's really too bad. All that king of Egypt had to do was look around and see the hand of God in his own nation. Egypt survived and was only given its power and influence because of the kindness of Joseph, the kindness they showed to Joseph, and the wisdom that God gave to him. He could have listened to Joseph's prophecies. The leadership, Pharaoh, you know, his prophecy was a statement of faith in God's earlier promise that, that Israel would be delivered and they would inhabit Canaan. All he had to do was listen. And you know, God made that promise long before this Pharaoh had ever taken a breath. But no, this king, like so many in the world, he thinks he's wise. Let us deal wisely. We're going to talk about that next Wednesday night. He looks at the problem. He says, let's deal wisely with them. Let's use our Egyptian wisdom. But by ignoring and excluding God in his so-called wisdom, like our country's doing now and our leaders are doing now, he was at the height of madness and folly. As you're going to see in the next few weeks, this Pharaoh wasn't all there. He, he started to lose it. He was a few bricks short of a pyramid, you might say. And I'll say it again. This is our country. Our leaders think they're dealing wisely. Our judges, academia, they're dealing wisely when they ignore history and the real reasons for God blessing this country. These rulers think they're dealing wisely when they act as if God does not exist. And then they start to go from fearing God's people to hating God's people 
to finally subjugating God's people. Pharaoh is not the only one and not the first one who thinks he has the right to decide in verse 16 to kill infants from the womb. Oh, that's a great plan, Pharaoh. We have a problem. Here's the solution. Remember there was the, the Jewish problem in Germany and then there was the final solution. Every problem has a solution. Great plan, Germany. You're so wise. Great plan, Pharaoh. What worldly wisdom you have. But you know something? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And God is going to take one of those very Hebrew babies that they wisely said we're going to kill all of them, just one of them, and with that infant baby bring deliverance that's going to show that the struggle between Israel and Egypt was not about politics. It never was about politics. It's not about politics now. It was always about faith. It was always about Satan hating God and God's people. And so, we will see in the weeks ahead what every Christian should already know from Scripture. That Exodus wasn't just about some struggle between Moses and Pharaoh. That's Hollywood. They tried to make one. Gods and kings. Awful. Even the prince of Egypt. Even uh, the Ten Commandments. With Charlton Heston. God shall not. Yeah. Not the whole story. It is rather a battle that's ongoing and has been ongoing since the Garden of Eden, ever since God gave a promise. It is a battle between good and evil, God and Satan. Jude says it's Satan and Michael. Lucifer, a former archangel, Michael, an archangel. Jude says that they fought over the body of Moses. Moses. The devil wanted that body for reasons that included destroying God's plan. That is behind-the-scenes information that only God can see. But I'm telling you, folks, it's real. It is a real spiritual warfare. And it is the reason why Moses' parents and these Hebrew midwives will be studying about and all of those who are faithful in the battle are examples to all. They are heroes. These people are heroes of standing for God in truth hundreds of years into slavery. They trusted God. They resisted the devil when it seemed and when it appeared there was no reason to do so. If power politics is a matter of who you knew and who you know, well, they knew the king of kings. Verse 17, look at it. But the midwives feared God. Really? The Hebrew midwives, after hundreds of years of slavery, they still feared God. After brainwashing the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men, children alive. See, Pastor, how, can, how in the world can Pharaoh or his court or any of them in just 100 years, a little less than 100 years, completely forget Joseph? Remember, Joseph was number two. He saved not only Egypt, he, he brought wealth from all of the world to Egypt. How can they forget Joseph and his God in, with all that wealth, all that power he brought in? How is it possible to do it that quickly in basically one and a half or two generations? Look, you know who John Harvard is? Was? John Harvard was a preacher in America in the late 15th, 16th century. 
He founded a college called Harvard College for one purpose. He was a preacher who said, we need a college in this new country that trains preachers. How is it possible that Harvard now despises that heritage, does its best to do the opposite of what those Bible-believing fundamentalist preachers did in the early days of our country? The same goes with every Ivy League school you can think of. This long war against God, the nation of Israel, caught in the middle, of course, continues to this very, very night, and precisely as God has foretold. And again, we'll see this as we go on. But the book of Exodus, legitimately, beloved, does not end. The Genesis did not end, and Exodus doesn't end, literally until all of us as believers are in heaven. Because redemption, true redemption, includes glorification. Let me put it this way, and we'll close. Everybody in this room has had a Genesis, a beginning. All of you in this room have been born, because you're here. I see you. Some of you are asleep. You're half awake, but you're born at least. But not everyone in this room has had an exodus. Certainly not everyone in the world has had an exodus. Not everyone has been redeemed who has been born set free. And beloved, in the very same way that Pharaoh said, no, you can't go. Remember Moses came and said, let my people go. Let the people of God go. And he said, nope, I own these people. These people are mine. They belong to me. They are built. I'm using them to build my kingdom, including my pyramid that's not even finished yet. And so, no, I'm a God, and these people belong to me as God. In the same way that he claimed ownership that included bondage, Satan did to us. The Bible says that we were in bondage from birth. Spiritual bondage to Satan and the devil. And no, Satan did not want to let you go. If you've been redeemed, if you're set free in Christ, the devil did not want that to happen. And the, therefore, the only reason that it did happen was a miracle and a sacrifice. It took the blood of the Lamb and the power of God to save you. Never forget that. When we say you're glad you're saved, never forget that what it took for you to be saved. That's what this pictures. This whole amazing story of, of redemption. And if you're here tonight and you've ever wondered why, ah, Pastor, I read the Bible and I wonder why so many plagues. Why the frogs? Why the lice? Why did it have to do this? And why did God have to go all of this? And why that long wilderness journey? You know, it could just be the boom, boom, right there, done. And why so long? Why 430 years in Egypt? And why so hard? You're going to see why. Beloved, look, all you have to do, really, if you're a true student of Scripture, is just listen and consider what God has revealed about Himself. Consider that redemption is never cheap. It can't be just boom, boom. And it's never easy. The blood of Jesus, we sing it, we say the words. But the blood of Jesus is eternally more than just a phrase. That's why we have communion. You're supposed to remember what it really is. And that's not all. Do you know why 400 years? Does anybody in this room know why 400 years? Because there's a reason. 
We're going to close with this. Genesis 15. Look back there. Maybe they'll put it on the screen. Let's go all the way back to the promise we studied a few months ago, where it all kind of begins with a covenant. You see verse 13, right? And God said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Look up here for a minute. Does God keep his promises? Does God know the future? This is four centuries before it ever happened. Abram, know that you're going to have children and children, and they're going, to, they're going to multiply. They're going to be fruitful. But they're going to be in a land that's not theirs, that's not Canaan, and they're going to be afflicted. And then the Lord reveals something else. Verse 16. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither, here, Canaan, again. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God says, you're going to have to wait 400, they're going to wait 400 years. Because in Canaan, there are going to be these people, these nations, the Canaanites, that includes the Amorites and a bunch of others. And they are a wicked people. And they are going to do things that you can't even think about. I, you can read about it in Leviticus, I think, 18 or 19, and it's, it's horrendous. And God said that I am going to give them time centuries to repent the cup of God's wrath was not full for the first hundred years second hundred years third hundred years you see why 400 years in other words God was being just and merciful in Leviticus 18 as I mentioned the sins of the Canaanites are given and it's all violence and it's all horrendous and it says the, all the Canaanites, the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Termites and the turn out the lights and all of them, they're just all going to be wicked. And they're going to fill up. At any moment, they could have repented. They're going to fill up the cup of wrath and judgment. And when they do, at the same time, God's people would be ready for the land that they have defiled. And in God's wisdom, also grace, mercy, and holiness, all of that will come together. It's all on display, even in the fact that it took 400 years. And all of it in the midst of our questions and wonderings about it. And we could go on for my part tonight. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that I not only had a Genesis, but when I was 12, I had an exodus. By the mercy and the grace of God, I was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. A wilderness journey, and one day, the promised land. And let's say this, the promised land from the one, as you can see, who keeps his promises. And God's people said, amen. Father, thank you for your word. And as we continue, Lord, this foundational study of your word, Genesis and Exodus, I pray, Father, that you will please help us to submit our hearts and our minds not to philosophies or to men's ideas about you, but to this book, to your word, to the Holy Spirit. Thank you for these faithful people. And bless us all tonight in the fellowship to follow in Jesus' precious name. Amen.